Welcome to the February edition of the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm a professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy here at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Colonel Gene Bardo, the commander of the U.S. Army Public Health Command Central. The command provides public health leadership and evidence-based preventive medicine programs and veterinary services to optimize the health of military units, installation personnel, and animals within 20 states, the Caribbean, and Central America. In this podcast, we talk about Colonel Bardo's career as an Army Nurse Corps officer, starting in the reserves and then transitioning to active duty. We discuss her many roles in the military, including deployments to Kosovo and Afghanistan, then discuss her role as the commander of a dispersed unit with many diverse missions. We conclude with a discussion of leadership. I want to thank the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for their ongoing support of this podcast, and I would like to ask if you like this podcast, would you show your support by leaving a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be downloading this recording from. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Colonel Gene Bardo, Commander of the U.S. Army Public Health Command Central. Welcome to The Forge, Colonel Bardo. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time to be able to tell my story. So you're from up here in Massachusetts, and you went to Regis College in Boston, Mass., where you received a BSN, a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Why did you go to Regis, and how did you come to choose nursing as your major? Um, as a child, I always um, was kind of the caregiver. I'm the oldest of four children. My cousins live next door, and just really always was interested in healthcare. Did well in the sciences and felt a strong pull towards nursing. And actually, I graduated from Peter Ben Brigham School of Nursing in Boston back in 1983 with a diploma, an RN diploma. And then after a couple of years, after I had joined the reserves, I went back to finish my bachelor's degree because the reserves actually had a program through Regis College for nurse corps offices to finish their degree. Um, We went to school there in lieu of going to our weekend drills and over the course of a three-year period, managed to finish my bachelor's degree that way. Oh, fabulous. Okay. And and why nursing as opposed to one of the other health fields, maybe? I think I just really enjoyed taking care of people and being hands-on. Okay. So as you mentioned, you went into the reserves. So you did not go from uh, once you completed your uh, – initially completed your RN, you were in the reserves uh, – So what were you doing? Where were you working and and what were you doing after getting your RN? So after I graduated in 1983, I actually um, worked at Tufts University and worked in a variety of clinical settings. So I was a civilian nurse, um, got married, had kids, continued to work mostly in the ICUs and the ER settings. And then honestly, one day I was, had worked a night shift. It was a long night shift. I, we had a patient die and just was really struggling with where I was going with my career And honestly, a be-all-you-could-be Army commercial came on that focused on medical professionals. And I thought, that looks awesome. And I called a recruiter and joined the reserves. No kidding. I remember those commercials. I I like the (laughs) be-all-you-could-be ad, right? I mean, that was a great one. Um, It was? uh, Anyway. um, uh, So you joined the reserves uh, in, in, I think it was 87, and you served with the 399th Combat Support Hospital in Taunton, Mass. So for, for... Listeners who are not familiar with the Army Reserves and what that, you know, how that's different than the active component, what is the U.S. Army Reserves? So the definition is really the Army Reserves is the Army's a federal reserve force. They provide operational capability and, and really strategic depth to the total Army to support the national defense strategy. Um, you know, so what does that really mean? Basically, we don't have enough workload, so to speak, um, for soldiers to be on active duty, to be prepared to go to war all the time. So the Army looks for folks who do the job that we need on a regular basis and be in a reserve status ready to go at the drop of a notice when we need them to go. But they can be really civilianized um, most of the time and then come on active duty when we need them. And That's the, really the U.S. Army Reserves in a nutshell. So, and the 399th Combat Support Hospital was a reserve unit. Why would it be a reserve unit as opposed to an active unit? 
so interesting. So the 399th um, was established back in uh, before World War II, I think 19, I want to say 40, early 40s. Um, it was actually an evacuation hospital, the 105th evacuation hospital. So their focus was to get um, people away from the battlefield as quick as possible and either send them back to the you know, United States or fix them and get them back to war. Um, after World War II, it was placed in a reserve status. And I, I'm, I'll make an assumption that at that point, we didn't need as many act of active duty hospitals that could go to war. So that particular one was placed in reserve status. And in 1974, it was actually redesignated as the 399th Combat Support Hospital. What a combat support hospital brings to the table is really close surgical, dental, pharmacy, lab, x-ray, critical care capabilities closer to the point of injury. Um, and again, the purpose of having it as a reserve is that we can, in theory, quickly call up the reserves and say, we need a combat support hospital in 30 days to go downrange to set up and take care of soldiers. And so really, that's, that's why it became a combat support hospital or a reserve combat support hospital, as opposed to staying active. What was it like balancing your civilian professional life with your military responsibilities as a reservist? So you mentioned you had done some training. The, the, the reserves gave you the opportunity to, to earn your BSN. Um, but in general, Correct. how was that work? So, you know, I had a full-time job as a civilian nurse. Um, I worked in the ICU and the ER 40 hours a week. I was a mother, had two kids. Um, from a balancing perspective, um, it, it could oftentimes be difficult because the reserves requires you to go to the reserve center and, and what they call drill or do your time at the reserve center one weekend a month. And then at least two weeks during the year, typically in the summer, you get put on active duty. You'll go to wherever the training location is, do your training and come back. There's always a risk of getting deployed, as we'll talk about soon, um, that I did deploy for nine months with the reserves. But from... My civilian job was really what was essential to my role in the reserves. I can't stress that enough. The whole purpose of the reserves is to have a ready force who can do the job that we need them to do um, at a drop drop of a hat. And by being a civilian nurse working in critical care and in the ERs, I could perform that job just like that. I didn't have to have a big train up. Now, of course, some of the soldiering skills, you know, you needed to to catch up on, but really it was about having your civilian profession be what your military role is. So it was good. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, you deployed uh, in 2001 with the Combat Support Hospital to Kosovo, where you were assigned as the head nurse of the ICU, and you managed the critical care transportation team. So what was it like deploying as a reservist into, uh, uh, into a um, combat zone what were the and what were the challenges perhaps that you and your colleagues faced that was unique or different than if you might have been an active unit? So um, we went to um, to Bonsdale Camp Bonsdale in Kosovo in two thousand one. We arrived there before before nine eleven, so we were there right around the February two thousand one time frame, and it was a peacekeeping mission. So it was relatively calm from that perspective. Um, most of the time, we took care of sick soldiers, occasional appendectomies, but a large number of local nationals uh, just providing goodwill care. The nice part about deploying with the reserve unit was that I had been in that reserve unit for probably 10 years by the time we actually deployed together. So these are folks that live in my community, went to school. I actually went to high school with some of the nurses that I deployed with, worked with some of them at my civilian job. Some of them lived in my town that I was living in. Some people worked with my husband. Some people worked with my sisters and brothers and cousins. So really, it was like deploying with your true family. So from that perspective, it was very different than on active duty. Oftentimes, the first time you meet people is when you show up in theater and you're expected to work together. But really, the challenges are the same in a deployed set setting, whether you're on active duty or you're with the reserves. The environment is really the challenge, not necessarily caring for sick patients because that's what you do on a regular basis. I will note that the big thing was when we came home in October, right after, so a month after 9-11, we came wow. back to a country that had been forever changed. Absolutely. So tell us, tell us a little more about what the, what the, what was it like <laughs> caring for people? Say, so that's interesting. It's not all that common that that a you get a, a mission where you're actually caring uh, for local nationals. Um, what was that like? So you know, really, patients to the to the medical 
professional. It doesn't matter who your patient is. But with the local nationals did bring some of the challenges, so not speaking the language, some of the diseases that we typically don't see in our own in, in the United States anymore because maybe immunizations aren't up to speed. Um, there's a lot more poverty, so starvation and those kinds of things that you don't typically see on a regular basis. But I think the biggest challenge providing healthcare um, was that things are not always available. So the supply closet actually runs dry. You have to get creative in ways you would never have to in a hospital setting. So simple things like, how do I heat up water to give a patient a bath? Because the water that's coming out of this thing we call a sink that you have to actually pump to get the water to come out of is cold. The beds aren't electric. They're just cots. There's no side rails. How do I protect my patient who just came out of the operating room when there are no rails on the beds that you typically have in a hospital to make sure they don't fall out? Sometimes because we were in tents, the tents leak. Water would run down the middle of the, you know, the aisle between the beds. And you, you just, you have to learn to get creative in how you do things. Very different than in the hospital setting, for sure. Wow. Yeah. So not long after you returned from Kosovo, you actually transitioned to active duty in 2003. Uh, what made you decide to, to transition to active duty? So very interesting. I uh, got remarried and my husband was what's called AGR or Active Guard Reservist. So he serves under the reserves, but he's on active duty. Um, and it would take me forever to kind of explain yeah, that. Sure. So I That's okay. Just, we can skip that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we did our first PCS to Fort Jackson and I got a part-time job on the base as a an ER nurse. And I met the chief nurse there, Colonel Joan Campanero. Um, she actually let me, she worked with me so I could perform my reserve weekends at the hospital there, Moncrief Army Community Hospital, instead of going back to Boston to do reserves. And about a month or so after I was there, she asked if I wanted to come on active duty. And I did. And I never looked back. So um, it's been an awesome experience. Any surprises as uh, once you made that transition? Um, you know, I really loved it. I loved serving in the military. Um, I, I think the biggest surprise was how often I had to move. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> really. But from a healthcare perspective, you know, it's really, um, it's great to take care of people. And again, I think from a healthcare perspective, a patient is a patient and you really you either enjoy it or you don't. And I really, I love taking care of people. So it, it was to my advantage to be on active duty. Sure. So where were you once you came on active duty? At Fort Jackson, South Fort Carolina. Jackson. All right. Very good. On Creek Army Community Hospital. It's now a clinic. Um, they closed the hospital itself. So what were you doing? What was your role uh, when you came on active duty? So originally I served as the chief of education. Um, did that for about a year before becoming the head nurse of uh, their urgent care clinic, which was open 24 hours a day. It's the largest basic training post in the United States. So they have lots of trainees that, that are there and they need sick call and things like that throughout the night. So although it wasn't an emergency room per se, it was still healthcare availability 24 hours a day for um, sort of sick call and, and urgent care needs, so stitches, things like that. Sure. So in 2005, you deployed again, this time with the 249th cash in support of Operation mm -hmm. Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. I, was the, were you in a PROFIS role to that organization or, was that a, or were you actually assigned full-time to that organization? So I was PROFIS. So again, okay. that's where the difference comes in when you get deployed. So I was PROFIS to that unit. The unit was out of um, Fort Gordon, Gordon, which is in Georgia. So there were about five or six of us from Moncrief Army Community Hospital out of Fort Jackson that were profess to the 249. People came from all over the southwest and part of the United States from other active duty uh, bases to be a part of that deployment. Could you explain? Uh, so I just threw the term profess in there because I know mm -hmm. you and I both know what that <laughs> means. Uh, but can you explain what profess is and kind of compare a profess unit to a reserve unit? Okay, so a PROFIS unit is a unit, so the 249 Combat Support Hospital was located physically at Fort Gordon. So they have some folks assigned to it, so the chief nurse is assigned, the commander is assigned, there's some support administrative staff, and some probably minimal staffing for what we would call the wards, the ICU, the ER, lab, pharmacy, x-ray, um, are assigned there and actually work there. So it's a building. It's not an actual hospital. In order to sustain their skills, they typically, those individuals will typically work at the hospital located on the base. 
So at Fort Gordon, they went to uh, Dwight David Eisenhower and did whatever it was they needed to do to keep up their clinical skills. At the same time, they would also uh, work on the Comet Support Hospital itself, the physical uh, tent situation and the equipment that we would use if we were deployed um, with the as the 249th Comet Support Hospital. The equipment is a little bit different than the equipment you actually would see in the in a, a regular hospital in the United States. So what happens is when it gets activated to go to war, they bring in all the other staff that are on active duty, and it's a quick turnaround time. So you're notified typically two to three months beforehand that you're going to go. About a week before you're going to leave the country, you all go to the location, which would be would have been for me, Fort Gordon. So I left my job at Fort Jackson, went to Fort Gordon. We did a couple of train-up missions right at Fort Gordon, and then we got on a plane, and we landed um, in Bagram, Afghanistan, and took over the hospital that was physically already in place. Now, if it hadn't been in the mission, had just started, the war had just broken out, we may have been required to build the hospital from the ground up, but we happened to fall in on a hospital that was already built at Bagram. And again, pseudo-tent and wood kind of structure. And so, Profis, you're assigned to that hospital, but you work somewhere else in your full-time job. How was your deployment to Afghanistan different from your deployment to Kosovo? So it was definitely a different time in the world. We were actually in a world a war zone, not on a peacekeeping mission. Um, so the injuries we saw was 2005 to six. There were lots of um, just ghastly injuries to service members, way more deaths. I think I spent about a half a year in the ICU, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, the winter is brutal there. So as the winter set in, the hospital itself became a little bit less busy. So they moved me over to the outpatient clinic area and that's really where I became interested in um, family nurse practitioner kind of healthcare policy. How can we better take care of our our soldiers and get them prepared to uh, make sure they're ready to go to war? And I also at that point had an opportunity to work with now Colonel George Goodwin. He was a major at the time in, in setting up a residency program for Afghan doctors. Um, and you know the whole idea was that they're there. We're gonna we're gonna leave at some point, and they're gonna need to know how to take care of the plethora of burn and amputee victims that have been left behind um, due to a war. Um, so it was really, we had translators, we, we taught them critical care skills, we, we actually taught them, you know, basic life support, so the, you know, CPR, advanced life support, um, and they were so eager to, to learn. It was just a really an incredible opportunity to share, share knowledge and learn from, from them how to be a little bit more creative when you don't have things um, that we're so used to having, like running water and electricity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Things we just kind of take for granted, especially in our, in our hospitals. Correct. So in this deployment, were you treating nationals? So were you treating Afghan civilians and, 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 and or Afghan um, military? Or was so it? we were. We we actually we were a multinational hospital. So we treated not only our own service members, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. Um, we also uh, were the healthcare for that location for any of the other NATO nations that were there. Um, and then in addition to that, oftentimes uh, folks would bring local nationals on base. So you know it was not unusual for somebody to show up outside the base with. Um, you know, somebody who's been shot, you know, a child who's been burned. Um, and as long as we had capability um, and capacity, we would bring them in. And that's really the goodwill part of military health care is, is helping, um, you know, and it builds trust, builds relationships. So we not only saw them, we also saw, um, you know, Afghan soldiers as well, but then also the enemy because we treat everybody that comes into our hospital. So, um, you know, the, the holding facility on Bagram, we provided health care to, to those individuals that were being held. What is different or, I mean, obviously you're providing health care, but what do you have to think about when you are treating, say, someone who's been captured who is part of the enemy force? So for, something for an, an individual with. like that, there's always security forces there to protect you. Okay. Um, we, um, you know, you're in the military, so, you know, you, you just have to, safety is always 
our utmost concern. And so they, the security forces provide the security for that. Um, we try to stay focused on providing health care, getting the individual to the maximum health that they can be at before they can go wherever the next destination is. For some people, it was, you know, dropping them off outside the gate of Bagram and saying, good luck. I hope you can get back to your village. Um, some of it was, unfortunately, for those individuals, to the prison. Um, for our own soldiers, you know, if it was something simple, back to duty or, you know, not so simple, back to launch stool in Germany, which would then bring them back to the United States. Um, you know, big part for when you don't speak the language, you have interpreters and you have to be able to trust those interpreters that what you're telling, what they're telling you is what the individuals are saying. And, you know, from a, it's a third world, I would almost say a fourth world country. Okay. So simple things that we think about all the time, like having someone brush their teeth. These people had never seen a toothbrush, let alone, um, you know, any of the kind of equipment that we were using or um, just even the telephone. Many of them had never seen a telephone before or heard a telephone ring. Right. Wow. Very different conditions. Um, yeah. So you returned from Afghanistan. Did you come back to Moncrief or did you move on from there? I did. So you always go back to where you are and you're pretty stabilized for you. They try to stabilize you for, you know, a good six months to a year um, just to allow you to kind of reintegrate into society. Because when you're in an, in a place like that for an extended period of time, there's all kinds of just folks have difficulties reassimilating into society. So they the Army really does a great job at making sure that they give you some stabilization the best that they can to help you with that. So I stayed at Fort Jackson. Um, I moved up into doing um, sort of the next level of work. So I was in operations and and covering down for the chief nurse and then decided to go to nurse practitioner school. I had, you know, my experience during the employment, particularly in the outpatient arena, I worked with uh, Major Chad Asplin. He was a family practice doctor who I, you know, was there with the deployment with me. And he was just exceptional as a family practice doctor. I, you know, I watched him, I watched him with patients and I thought, you know, this is awesome. I could do this. And he really encouraged me to go to FMP school. So I did. <laughs> okay. And you went to the Uniformed Services University's Graduate School of Nursing. So it, tell, yeah, I did. <laughs> tell, tell us a little about USIS. So USIS is the military's, um, uh, it's the military me medical school. So there's also, we, we grow our own doctors as well. Um, the nurse corps opted to establish a graduate school of nursing. So there's a family nurse practitioner tract. There's a um, psychiatric nurse practitioner tract. Um, there's a clinical specialist tract in the operating room. Um, and there's a, a certified nurse anesthetist tract. So, um, you know, it's right in Bethesda, Maryland. It was a great opportunity. The nurse practitioner program is, at this point, it's now a three-year doctorate program. When I went um, back and graduated in 2010, it was a master's level program, mm -hmm. um, rated in the top 10 in the country. Great instructors, great opportunities to learn, great great opportunities to share with the, our sister services because it's all of the services go there. So Navy and Air Force have medical folks. The Marine Corps does not. So um, work, you know, my Right in my left uh, peers, one was Navy, one was Air Force. So it was really an, a great opportunity. So you were inspired by a family uh, sorry, family medicine physician that you'd met. What were you? I was. What were you? What were the goals you were you, know, you had in mind when you went back to school? What did you want to try to do? So really and truly, uh, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, talking about family practice and just healthcare in general while we were deployed. And, um, you know, I really was interested in trying to improve the health of the force just from a preventive status. Like if we could do things before people get to the point where they're truly sick, if we can change their behaviors, um, the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I really thought that that was the role that I could see myself fulfilling as a family nurse practitioner. So, you completed the training. Where did that new qualification take you? What did you do? So that's where the, the Army is very interesting. So I was sent to <laughs> Fort Sam Houston uh, in 2010 to work at the troop, what's called a troop medical clinic. So all the soldiers who are in training here at Fort Sam Houston get their care over at the troop medical clinic. We call them TMCs. So I was seeing soldiers for sick call early in the morning um, to help not interfere with their training. Um, 
and get them back to training because that's really our priority. And then reviewing them and making sure that folks who truly had medical issues that may prevent them from being a soldier um, were, were addressed appropriately. I did that for about a year and then was uh, had the opportunity because rank, as you gain rank, you're given more responsibility. So I also got promoted um, to lieutenant colonel right before I graduated. Um, and so I was offered the opportunity to be the uh, chief of a clinic. So I was the chief of the Taylor Burke Clinic out of Camp Bullis, which is a satellite clinic from Brook Army Medical Center here at Fort Sam Houston. Um, and we provided both sick call to the soldiers who were out in that training environment, but also a family, pra- a small family practice. I had four other doctors that I worked with, and I think one PA, um, and then a plethora of support staff. And we ran a basically a family practice clinic out there. Jeez. So, what was that like running your own clinic? Oh, it was really awesome. I mean, the leadership at BAMC really allowed those of us who were running clinics um, to. Look at what our priorities were, establish the way ahead, and really move out smartly, um, and supported that. So we didn't have a lot of micromanagement. It, it was interesting for me. I had never run a clinic before other than an urgent care clinic, which is really sort of like an ER. It's very different than a Monday through Friday clinic. And it, it just you know allows you the opportunity to not only grow yourself, but to help other people grow as well. So it was really, it was a great opportunity. Okay. How long were you there for? Two years. Okay. <laughs> um, so. At the same time that I, uh, right after I graduated from nurse practitioner program, the Army offered me the opportunity to go to Army War College, doing it via distant learning, and spoke to one of my mentors um, about that and thought that that was a great opportunity, uh, retired General Bill Bester. He said, you know, when the, when the Army offers you something, you should never look that gift horse in the mouth. So I took that opportunity, and I actually graduated from War College with a degree in strategic studies. And so from there, the uh, Army sent me to work for the Assistant Secretary of the Army Manpower and Reserve Affairs at the Pentagon to oversee health policy. So I did that for two years, and it was incredible. It so, really was incredible. So what is, what is that? Um, so you're at the Pentagon. What is that role? So essentially, you look at different kinds of uh, – Governing bodies, so the national the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, what does Congress want the health care to do? What does Tricare need us to do? What does the president tell us he wants the health care to run? Folks down at the lower levels for MedCom establish policies and run it through the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower Reserve and Reserve Affairs. My role was literally to read staff read and staff policies and to ensure that they were they were actually acceptable policies for us to push out because once those policies were in place, that's how business is done. So you had a, a huge scope and a, a huge responsibility. I did. Wow. And there were four of us. Four, four health care providers uh, actually worked in that office and handled that. And we split stuff up. So I, I did a lot in the behavioral health realm a lot in the the critical care realm and women's health. Somebody else did, um, you know, sort of medical medical diagnoses kind of stuff. Um, someone else covered readiness, health of the force readiness. So we worked together, but we had our own portfolios that we focused on. Okay. So from this policy job, did you come back to Fort Sam immediately from there or – was there something else? I did work? not. Okay. I actually was selected to be the chief nurse at Fort Jackson for Moncrief Army Community Hospital and spent two, about a year and a half as okay. the chief nurse there, okay. um, which so, was an awesome job. You get to, I went back to being with soldiers. So whenever you get to mentor and shape the future minds of the military, military med- medicine and have a part in that, it's really an awesome feeling. Um, you get to spend time. Really, the nice part about being in leadership is you really physically do a lot. It's not like you, you're putting widgets together. Right. You're sort of overseeing that um, and helping folks to focus and, and become great leaders themselves. So it was, that was a good opportunity. And then in July, I took command of the public health okay. command here at Fort Sam Houston. So, so in July of t- 2016, you, you took command of the public health command uh, central at Fort Sam Houston, as you said. Uh, what is the mission of the public health command? And, and the and the central. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so our mission statement is: we strengthen public health by generating readiness of the total force 
through force protection and integrated animal health. So you say to yourself, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that's what I'm saying. So essentially, <laughs> essentially we, what we really strive to do is optimize the health of military units, the installation personnel, and animals, and the environment within 20 states, the Caribbean and Central America. That's the, oh. that's the breadth of my, my command. And there are four public health commands, the central region of the, the, central region of the United States, then east of the Mississippi is considered the Atlantic region. Then we have the Europe region and Pacific uh, region. Um, and so we each have our own area that we, we cover. And there are some specifics that are just done in each of our own areas. So I, for instance, have the only level one trauma dog hospital in the military here at Fort Sam Houston that falls under my purview, which they don't have in the other four regions. What is a level one trauma dog? Did I say that right? Trauma dog center. You did. Okay. So think of BMC, Brook Army Medical Center, a big hospital or Boston City Hospital. So physically, it's not quite that big, but think of that kind of care available for our military working dogs. So we have surgical suites, we have CAT scan, we have OR, we have a... We have a um, behavioral health section. We have a rehabilitation section. We have a pool for the dogs to go in to, to recover from any injuries they might have. Um, we breed puppies there. Oh. It's pretty all-encompassing as a dog hospital. And we do wellness checks every month, all of the working dogs um, that are actually at basic training. So at any given point, there may be six to 800 dogs uh, that are in basic training over the course of the, the year to year. Um, and they have sick call, you know, they get upset stomachs and they have, um, you know, ticks and fleas and they break their paws and, um, they need a place to go to. So, so are, are, was, <laughs> is the, is the basic training for all military dogs at Fort Sam? We're in the, yes, it is Fort Sam area. I'm assuming. Okay. It's at, it's actually at Lackland Air Force Base. Oh, Lackland. Okay. I was going to say, I, I was at Fort Sam a long time and I don't recall seeing that, but that's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know that. Neither did I when I took command. So it's amazing what you, I was, I thought I would take command of a hospital, which is where my, you know, my, my whole focus has been my entire career as a hospital and people. So public right. health has been a little bit of a, um, a change for me. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. What is public health? Uh, so when so, you, you know, use that frame, what does that mean? I was curious what it meant as well. And so really it is the art and science of preventing disease, prolonging life and promoting health. Yeah, and how does that how does that manifest itself within your organization? So literally, we we look at ourselves as a sort of a a trifecta for healthcare. So we deal with um, we call it One Health. It's people, animals, and the environment. And so most people think about public health and they think preventive medicine. They think about smoking cessation campaigns or flu campaigns or the Ebola, rabies, uh, the Zika virus, but we also do things like prevent contaminated food and water sources from getting through to the military. We look at environmental concerns such as lead paint and noise. Um, we provide not necessarily the actual services uh, where we go out and do check on environmental concerns, but the command itself is really the expertise in how to assess and manage those threats. We provide state-of-the-art training. We can offer technical assistance, consultative services. However, we can go out and do laboratory testing. So if somebody says, I think our water source has been contaminated at a base and they don't have the, the capability to test that, we will send somebody out immediately with all of the field testing equipment and they will test the water for whatever it is that they may think is in it. Um, we can do – and then in addition to that, we have all of the veterinary services for the military. So all of the working animals, dogs, horses, mules, anybody, any of the colleges, the universities. So the Air Force Academy is here in my region, and they have the Falcons that they let loose at the football games, and they tour with them. We provide health care for those Falcons. Wow. So you talked about sending expertise out. So mm -hmm. what kind of units make up the Public Health Command Central? So interestingly, where it's a very uh, different type of a command. So here at Fort Sam Houston, I have a headquarters building where sort of like the administrative oversight. Within the building itself, we have the environmental health 
um, section and they'll do um, the you know contaminated water sources or anything within the environment soil um, when bases open up their 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 pools anything like that they can go in and check check for those water check the water sources to ensure that they are uh, clean sources we also have industrial hygiene here so anything that has to do with like noise lead paint in the in the wood in the building that you're working in work site analysis to make sure that if somebody's having significant back issues that their ergonomics we have actually have one individual who does ergonomics and then we have a lab so we have the DOD food analysis diagnostic laboratory here so all of the rabies uh from the central region um anybody who thinks you know you find a dead a bat particularly in the housing area um they'll send the bat to our lab um and we will test it we also take like so Fort Carson has an issue with uh hang on while I remember the name of that prairie dog that's what okay. it is yes prairie dogs and they carry a specific uh zoonotic d- disease um, that you know, you just want to make sure if they're using some of the sandboxes within the um, child development centers that they're not leaving excrement behind, and then that could infect the kids. So we can go out and we can go out and test for that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, the dog hospital is its own sort of separate entity. All of the working dogs across the entire military. If they need that higher level of care, yeah. we will have them sent to there to get taken care of. And then we have veterinary services on almost every single installation across the United States. So, so both Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, if you see a veterinary clinic, that's actually the oversight comes out of my um, command in the central region. So the veterinary – so uh, all of uh, – do the – so like the vet um, office at – Fort Carson, for example, up up by uh, up by the Air Force Academy, does that organization roll up under you, or is it or is it supervised by, or do you provide provide professional oversight, and it actually reports to a local commander? How does that work? So I have two local commanders. I have a, a command. So we split the country in half, the whole uh-huh. central region in half. Okay. So essentially, anything that's above the Oklahoma Texas. Um, New Mexico border, anything above that is part of Fort Carson, and I have a commander with a very small administrative workforce that oversees everything up in the northern part of the central region, and then I have another commander located at Fort Hood, and he does the same thing for those areas. So the small, the the individual clinics report directly to them, and then they report to me. Okay. So you do have assets Outside of Fort, so you're at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, but you do have Correct. assets that that report back to uh, to your organization ultimately. I do across so, 48 installations across 20 states, the Caribbean and uh, Central America. So let's talk about you. You're the commander. Okay. What does that mean? I am. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a learning curve for me because I. I had made the assumption that I would get command of a hospital, and you know what the roles of the commander of the – it's sort of like the CEO of the hospital. The commander of the public health command is a little bit different because my folks are spread out all over the place. And and essentially, your job as a commander is to lead, provide oversight, facilitate growth of the organization. Um, It can be very difficult to try to do that when only maybe 10% of your people are located within walking distance of my office. (laughs) Right. Most of them are a plane ride or, or 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 a full day drive away. But really, your job as the commander is to lead, provide oversight, and facilitate growth of the organization. Um, well, so so with a distributed organization like that, how do you do those things? How do you provide the oversight? How do you how do you help your people grow and so forth? So you know, each day is different, and I and and I. When I first took the organization over, I took about 90 days to figure out exactly how I would go about doing that. And so for me, every day is different due to the not only the diverse nature of the organization, um, but the the fact that everybody is located all over the place. So when I'm here at the headquarter building in San Antonio, I spend a good portion of the time working with the administrative staff on projects like budget, manpower, um, work with the lab, 
I do a lot of uh, professional development with supervisors and soldiers alike, as well as individual civilians, um, just making sure that we've spent the time and energy to not just mentor, but actually educate and grow them. So um, making sure that they're getting to courses that they need to get to if there's other civilian opportunities that they can attend. Um, in addition to that, on any given week, I could be traveling with my command sergeant major to various locations. And when we go out, it's a little bit it's a little bit easier because we get to spend time with the soldiers and the civilians. Usually in a group setting, we'll do a, a kind of a briefing, and then we spend time visiting with individuals, making sure that there aren't any issues that they need to have addressed at my level, at the what we would call the 06 level. So okay. sometimes we'll have trouble getting, let's just say, there's a leak in the building, which we are basically renting from the Navy because we're at a Navy base. So oftentimes I will spend my time when I go to that particular base meeting with the base command group to strengthen our relationship. I always spend time with the hospital commander just to make sure that they're aware that my folks are there. We may need some help with just getting classes, training. It really depends on which what base it is and and what we need from support for them, um, from them rather, as to how much time I'll spend there um, with the hospital or base leadership, just to make sure that my folks are getting the support they need. It's a very it's a very different way to spend your time leading. Yeah, and when you're not physically out, when you're back at Fort Sam, how do you how do you stay in touch? How do you keep an eye on? Kind of keep the pulse of, the, of what's going on in 48 places, some in foreign countries. So essentially, I use my two district commanders. My We call them activities, not districts, activity commanders. And I probably talk to them either by email or phone two to three times a day. Um, we also have scheduled VTCs so that I can actually see their faces. Um, they have my phone number that they call me 24 hours a day sometimes, depending upon what they need. Um, because oftentimes you, it's the next higher headquarters that you're asking for support from, and you just want to run something by someone who can give you a maybe a better idea or, or uh, make sure your idea is the right idea. So really, it's it's a lot of constantly pushing out information by, by either telephone, email, or VTC. Okay. What are you What are you paying attention to? What are you monitoring, kind of on a recurring, regular basis? Interestingly enough, um, the public what we would call the public health enterprise across the Army medicine really only had um, a few metrics that they were looking at that were public health related. So essentially, we are really looking at what what is it that we do, what should we be monitoring right now, and how can we start monitoring as soon as possible? Right now, we're, we're, we're only monitoring biannual physicals of the working dogs and some food audit stuff, as well as some occupational health exams, follow-up for hearing injuries, and then high-risk workplace analysis. So from, a mon- from an actual like metric monitoring perspective, those are the things we're looking at, but we really are looking at establishing some significant public health metrics to help move the Army forward and really the military um, forward with its public health enterprise. From a kind of subordinate unit thing, I keep my finger on the pulse through my first sergeants, my my district commanders, my sergeant major, to make sure that we don't have any soldier issues because we do have some soldiers who are just two soldiers out on a Navy base or an Air Force base way far away from any other Army assets. And what would can, – can you give an example of who would those people be and why are they – why do you have two, sold, two Army soldiers at a Navy base or an Air Force base? What are they doing out there? So they're veterinary corps people. So okay. it will be a veterinary corps officer, so a veterinarian and typically a – what we call a 68 Tango, which is the enlisted version of the veterinary tech. Um, so I'll use Minot, North Dakota as an example. It's an Air Force base. They have – a higher number of working dogs than some of the other locations. So there is a veterinary treatment facility on base where the working dogs can get their care. So right now, stationed there full-time is a military veterinarian and one military enlisted technical veterinary technical uh, person. We also have some civilians that work with them, so they're not by themselves, but they're a no-other-army 
folks around them. So it can make it a little bit difficult for Army professional development for both of them to make sure that they get the things that they need. Um, The the services can be very different, even though we are military, we can be very different. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about in terms of having folks that geographically dispersed. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the things I always found interesting was the, the, I, I thought of veterinarians, you know, growing up, I thought of veterinarians as primarily, you know, small animal, you know, care. Hmm. But the, the veterinary services in the military have a, have a, a number of roles, including uh, food safety, which I thought was interesting. Is that still the case? It is. And it is actually a very big part of their mission. Um, you know, they, they check on the food supply coming into any military installation. So so including, so for instance, if we get our chocolate milk from Nestle's, we have to send a veterinarian to the Nestle factory that is sending us that food to ensure that they're following the rules and regulations that are governed by um, FDA and other organizations that say how you're going to prepare and, and take care of food. So they, they, they have to actually go out on the economy and look at that. Then on our bases, um, our techs, the, the enlisted folks, spend a lot of time at our commissaries, making sure that the food that's coming into the commissaries that's being sold on the, on the shelves is appropriate. So, you know, like salad in a bag. If we have folks preparing sushi in our commissaries, that gets tested every day. If you're a Burger King on base, we're required to ensure that you're getting not only that the food you're service, serving is safe, but that there's not a security risk for someone to be able to infect the food that you're serving us. So making sure that they have security measures in place to prevent that from happening. It's really, that was a very interesting thing for me to learn about as well. I had no idea that that's what our veterinary services brought to the table. How, is, how, ha, how has your leadership had to evolve uh, in the last year as you've worked in this kind of unique organization? So I guess for me, uh, not having everyone at your beck and call where I can go out and have, have one-on-one time with folks. Um, and I think as a, as a leader, you're, you can only lead when people can see you, view you. They know what you're doing. You, you want to make sure that, that you're available, dependable, reliable, committed. And that is hard to show to a group of people who don't see you, not even, may, they may only see you once a year. It's, that was kind of a different approach to leadership for me. So I spend a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time on emails, trying to set up VTCs, trying to figure out how I can get to these individuals that I normally would never spend as much time thinking about how to deliver leadership as I have spent in the last year trying to figure out. You commented that, so you were obviously selected for command. It's the way the Army works for people who don't know this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're first selected for command and then you find out what kind of unit you're going to go to. Is that, is that kind of correct? You are correct. So for the army, for the army medical, medical, um, we are actually, we, well, they'll say, do you want to be a commander? You put your name in the hat. They select, if there are 20 commands available, they'll select 20 folks. The top 20 become selected to be commanders. And then once they have that list, they, there's a group that will look at those individuals and decide where they're best suited to be the commander. Probably three to five months later, you find out where you're going. Okay. And so you assumed you'd be sent to a hospital. But <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> and then, and so why did you assume that? And I guess, how did your previous assignments prepare you for this role, you think? Um. You know, I think because I worked at the Secretary of the Army's level doing health policy, um, I think that helped maybe push me or push the group to select me for this organization um, as opposed to sending me to a hospital maybe where your sole um, history has been in a hospital. I've been outside the hospital a couple of times um, and have worked in organizations that are not quite hospital-like and have had success. That is about the only thing that I could think of as of why I was selected to come to this organization. Well, what um, what, what I, of your what of your prior experience are you do you find yourself drawing on? In this, I role? would say my time spent at 
the Pentagon uh-huh. and understanding health policy and yeah. how because public health is is global in nature and you're reaching out outside of your building, so to speak. In a hospital, you're commanding typically within a building, maybe a couple of other buildings that are outside the hospital itself, but still on the same base and still have the same mission. You can move people around very quickly um, and you have a set mission, which is to take care of people. Public health is so broad. Um, We have animals, we have people, we have the environment um, and dealing with interagency. So spending a lot of time with the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, both the reserves and the National Guard, uh, zoos, actually, local zoos. We have partnerships with with them to help care for their animals if there was ever an, an emergency where they needed to evacuate animals and needed a bunch of folks hands-on to help them move animals. So I think my time at the Pentagon, where I did some interagency work, as well as being a War College graduate, an Army War College graduate, which is where you learn all about interagency capabilities, um, and how to establish relationships that way. I think those are the two things that maybe pushed me, if somebody was looking at my resume, yeah. would push me towards the public health command over the next person who may have only worked in a hospital and didn't have those opportunities. Sure. What are the most pressing issues facing the command today, the public health command today, and, and, maybe, what, and maybe even the military health system as a whole? And how do you fit into Ooh. So maybe, I mean, that's two separate questions, I guess. Um, So maybe from the frame of, uh, from the frame of your command, what are Mm -hmm. you, what are you worried about at the kind of the the MHS level, the military health system level? How do you play into, into that? So I think really right now the MHS is just struggling with continuing to be able to provide probably safe quality care and maintain the readiness of our troops under financial constraints. I would say that that is probably one of the bigger um, issues. You know, we're under the microscope all the time on how we provide health care. It's very unusual for you to hear anything about, you know, Hospital X in downtown San Antonio. It might be a blip on the news, but it doesn't make huge headlines and have congressional um, interactions. So I think for both the military health system and even, and even just public health in general, it's such a global, um, there's so many global issues that are hot right now. So originally it was a couple, like last year, Ebola, the Zika problems, providing quality, you know, again, I'm going to say it, quality, safe care, um, and maintaining readiness of our troops and how are we sure that our military folks are ready to go to war and do their mission at war. Um, and for us here at Public Health Command Central, that's a big issue for us because we we only have so many working military dogs spread out across a huge geographical area. Um, and our veterinarians and our techs are struggling. We're struggling ensuring that they can sustain their skills. You know, we use the pets. People's pets come to those locations as well. And even that, um, I think when you have a financial downturn, people tend to spend less money on their pets um, than they normally do yeah. in good times. Yeah. Um, and so over the course of the last few years, we've seen a significant drop in the number of pets that are being brought on base um, to have their health care. So our patient population, to keep our skills up, has dropped significantly. And that right now for us is a pressing issue because I need to make sure that if a veterinarian or tech has to go to war, can they do the job that I need them to do and are they prepared to go? Interesting. Well, so let's shift gears a bit and talk a little bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? So I believe that leadership is really multifaceted, encompassing strong core values. I have five personal core values um, that I try to, you know, bring to the table every, almost every day. So excellence, always giving 110% in everything I do and encouraging and promoting excellence in others. Trust, I'm a firm believer in trust. If you can't trust the people that you're with, it makes it very difficult to do anything. Um, Loyalty being committed to the organization and expecting um, that those I lead are loyal to me. Knowledge, continuing to learn and share what you have learned so that others can learn from you. And then an odd one, I I, I would guess, maybe family, um, being an active participant with the family you were born into, 
and the one that you work or play with. Um, I think as a leader, it's important to do the best you can every day. And I, I said it earlier, be available, dependable, reliable, and committed. And ultimately to strive to leave the organization better than when you arrived. And that's kind of an odd one because most people don't leave the leadership role. The military, we change out every two years. Right. And it's a short time to make, make a change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? So I think being flexible is probably one of the, the traits or characteristics that a good leader has to have because not everything goes according to plan. And having the courage to always do the right thing no matter how difficult it may be. Um, having patience, humility, and integrity. And uh, I'll tell you, I probably have to work on those every day. Particularly, not integrity is an easy one for me. Um, sometimes maybe humility isn't, and patience is probably the one I struggle with the most. Yeah. <laughs> I want things done. Right. I, I know how to do them. Um, I have to make, make myself, you know, step back to allow other people to grow. So I try to practice that every day. Who did you learn these from most? I would say my dad. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was a, um, just pretty dynamic, uh, person and he expected that from me and he lived those values himself every day. He always, I mean, I from the time when I was a little girl, he would say, no matter what you do, you always, you always do the best at it. If you want to grow up and be a housekeeper, then you have the cleanest houses if you want to be a plumber, then you have the best pipes. If you want to be a doctor, then you're the best doctor. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Always give it 110% and always do the right thing no matter how difficult it may be. What are you looking for when you're evaluating leaders? So I'd say I'm, I'm, I'm looking for not only the standard you know, leadership traits that we all look for, but individuals who are willing to step outside their comfort zone, um, ask tough questions, they're innovative, and they think outside the box. And very rarely do you hear somebody um, say, well, that's because we've always done it that way. That's probably one of my pet peeves. Yeah. We've always done it that way. I want them to think out. I want them to be innovative and grow. So here's a money question for you. Can you give me an example of a leadership lesson you had to learn the hard way? Oh, you know, there's plenty of them I'm sure I could sure. tell you about. But I would say probably the um, – you know, for me, I, I str I'm a workaholic and I am a perfectionist. And so sometimes I struggle with that work-life balance and impatience. Um, and so I often work late. So my husband is, at, is still on active duty and we don't live, he's in DC still. Oh. So I'm a, what we call a geographical bachelor. So, you know, I'll stay at work late. I can get a little overzealous when I need a project done. I, I get excited about things in terms of, you know, I want everyone to be a part of it. And so let's, let's all, get, let's all get together and, you know, whatever. And I didn't realize that a few of my subordinate leaders were actually staying well past the normal duty hours to get work done. Cause that's, that's what they thought I wanted them to do. And right. that's what they thought I expected them. And actually it wasn't until a spouse came to me at a Christmas party just this past year. And I, I said, Oh, how's things going? And she said, Oh, you know, they're okay. And I said, how are the kids? And she said, well, they're good, except they really miss their dad. You know, he's missed a bunch oh. of key family <laughs> events. Um, I know you guys are working late and I know, you know, he has to get the job done and he really wants to do a good job. Um, and it just makes, makes the kids sad. And I, and I felt horrible. Yeah. I literally realized that I had dropped the ball completely on making sure that my subordinates, um, really understood my expectations of them. Yeah. And being a little bit more patient and maybe not being so, um, overzealous in terms of making sure that things are getting done right away. So I, I really try and I, and I work on that. So typically at five o'clock I go around and I tell people it's time for you to go home. Yeah. And I even change into civilian clothes and go running, even though most of the time I come back, but I wait until the parking lot is empty <laughs> and I know everyone has gone home so I can make sure that, you know, they learn from you and they mimic what you do. And right. I felt horrible about that. Yeah. And that that's a failure of a leader to recognize that. I'm grateful that she pointed that out um, and I could change my behavior for that. But boy, that was that was an eye-opening experience for me to pay attention more. Yeah. Kind of along these lines, you know, of the leader setting the standard, what is organizational culture and, and why is it important? 
So to me, organizational culture is really about the values and behaviors that make up the heart and soul of the organization. You know, your your productivity, your performance, the safety of the organization are really dependent on the culture. I mean, if people think they can just come to work, drink coffee all day, not get anything done, nobody cares, or or be disrespectful, um, then that perpetuates an atmosphere where people don't want to stay, and then it's shoddy work that's get that gets done. And I really, I think for me, the most important aspect of organizational culture is to treat everybody with dignity and respect and, and really to make sure that everybody is clear on their roles and their responsibilities. And cultural change is hard. It takes time. It doesn't just happen because I say, okay, everybody is going to be nice. From now on, everyone will be nice. Right. Um, it really happens because you build relationship with the people that work for you and they watch you and they see how you behave and they want to emulate that. And they want to follow you because of who you are and what you represent. And that takes time. And unfortunately, I think the one fall, fall or bad point for the, for the military is that, or the Army Medicine military, we put people in command for only two years. Yeah. And it takes you about a year to kind of get into a groove. And then you're, you don't have enough time to really see the cultural changes take place. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I, I remember that. And I think that it's a, it gives a lot of opportunity for change and different sets of eyes, but it, it does have that downside of the quick turnover. You just getting to know somebody and it's time to go. Right. And, and if you're really trying to make a change, if there's some significant issues within an organization, the folks that are really causing those problems know well enough that you're going to leave in two years. So I can do anything for two years and it's just going to go back to being the way it was when you get ready to depart. Yeah, because you didn't really make a change because you didn't have time right. to truly incorporate that into their lifestyle. Really, it's a lifestyle change. On a slightly different topic, did you have a mm-hmm. mentor or mentors early in your career? So I would probably say I've had a, a couple of mentors in my life. Um, uh-huh. My first one was definitely my dad. Um, uh-huh. He always encouraged me to do my best. Um, I could bounce ideas off of him. He was very good about helping me to see maybe different venues um, or different ways to approach things without without crushing me um, and really always told me that the sky was the limit and I have really lived that in my life. And then early on in my active duty career would probably be Joan, Colonel Joan Campanero. She was my first chief nurse. Um, I just, I watched her and just watching her through her actions and her words, um, I, I I learned what I wanted to do and how I should be. Um, and what a good leader would be um, just by watching her. So what does a good mentor do? To me, a good mentor is available and honest, and they encourage you to reach your potential. And they figure out how to talk to you, especially if you're heading down a pathway that maybe might not be the best, without crushing you. Because the last thing you want to do is crush somebody's potential. You always want to make it seem like, Maybe it was their idea, or even if you're not trying to change them, but you don't want to prevent them from from trying anything new. Do you do you see yourself as a mentor now? Do you have people that uh, you think come to you and trust you to be a mentor? I do. I you know I've been very blessed. I have some young officers in this organization, as well as some um, new civilian supervisors who come to me and just ask me, you know, questions. And I think the longer you're in a relationship with somebody and the less you squish them, they're more apt to come to you for support um, and to get information and encouragement. And for me, it's really about, you know, sharing situations like I just told you about with, you know, not doing the right thing as a leader and giving them your personal experiences and hoping that, you know, they'll learn maybe a little bit from you. And for me, it's a sense of pride, especially yeah. when I see some of these young offices that I that were young second lieutenants who are now pinning on, you know, major and lieutenant colonel, and they're calling me and saying, I was selected to be the aide-de-camp, or I was selected to be a company commander. Thank you for helping me um, grow to be that person. It's really, you know, you almost want to cry. You're like a, yeah. a mother watching their child take their first steps or, you know, leaving them home alone for the first time, and you come back and the house is you know, it's the same way it was when you left. Yeah. <laughs> so like a sense of pride. Yeah. So 
um, for a young person thinking about a career in health, I'm going to give you kind of two angles to answer this on, uh, since you've got well, you've got a couple of different perspectives. So, for a young person thinking about a career in health, why should they think about public health, and or uh, why should they think about nursing? Ooh. Okay, so let me think about public health first. You know, public health is extremely diverse. There are so many angles within public health. Um, really, the sky is the limit there. Whether it's animals, people, the environment, um, it just public health makes a difference on a sort of a global perspective. So, if that really is the thing that you'd be interested in or at all, public health is the field for for a young person. Um, you know, just it's interesting, and there's so many aspects to it that interplay in all kinds of things. Um, from a nursing perspective, I think it takes a special person to be a nurse. Um, you know, I, I look at sometimes uh, people who are nurses who have cared for either me or my family when we've been ill, and there's definitely um, a type of person that should go into nursing. You know, you have to be caring, calm. You have to be kind and humble. Um you have to want to do things that other people don't necessarily want to do, like give a bed bath to an, to an elderly person. And, you know, just, again, it's a different type of a career field. I will say it is a wonderful career field. And, again, different paths that you can go down. And you can change. You can be a registered nurse and be taking care of cancer patients and two years later decide that you want to work with materna- maternity patients or work in the ER or maybe you want to do teaching. And it is a diverse field and it is family friendly. All right. So last question, what advice would you give to early careerists who aspire to lead a healthcare organization? So I would say watch and ask questions, um, participate in committees within the organizations to understand how it runs. Um, there's so much more to healthcare organizations than just providing the actual care. And I, you know, you can be a great bedside healthcare provider. I've seen a lot of um, nurses and doctors who are exceptional at the bedside. And when they tried to cross over to leading the organization, they really didn't have a full grasp on what it takes to run a healthcare organization. And they didn't participate in committees or, or ask questions or even just watch what goes on at the executive level. Um, and, and they had a difficult time. They got selected to be hospital commanders and, um, didn't have as good of a run, shall I say, as somebody who paid more attention. So I would say watch, ask questions, and participate. That's great advice. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me. I appreciate it. I have a wonderful day and uh, enjoy. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.